Section two of A Ride Across the Peloponnese. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Rob Marland in Ancient Olympia beside the Temple of Zeus. A Ride Across the Peloponnese by George Macmillan. Section two Olympia. Carriages had been sent to meet us from Pyrgos, about six miles inland, the first stage on our journey to Olympia. Our road lay at first through a marshy plain, covered with asphodel, bracken and rough grass. Later on the ground became more cultivated, and we passed fields planted with the currant vine and with fig trees, gardens full of orange and lemon trees, and rows of dark cypresses. By the time we reached Pyrgos it was dark, the town, which is of modern growth, consists mainly of one long straggling street, along which we rattled to our inn through crowds of people in all possible costumes, making as much noise as they knew how, a name in which they were assisted mightily by the dogs, which abound in all parts of Greece. There were a great many soldiers about. A bugle blown about nine o'clock dispersed these when the town became comparatively quiet. We had been promised entertainment in the shape of a performance of Hamlet in Greek at the Theatre Royal of Pyrgos, but unfortunately, it being Passion Week, old style, we found the theatre closed. About eight o'clock next morning, April 5th, we set off on horseback for Olympia. At first the road lay through a richly cultivated plain, then ascending a little, we passed through a picturesque break in a low range of hills, into the valley of the Alpheus, and was soon in sight of the famous plain of Olympia. It is a rich alluvial plain covered with luxuriant vegetation and watered by the Alpheus, which comes down loaded with soil from the Arcadian mountains, and receives, just below the point where in former times the temple stood and the games were held, the waters of the Cladius rushing down from the hills of Elis. Green hills, covered with trees, stand about the plain, broken only by these two river valleys. One low knoll, rising immediately to the northward of the Alpheus, is Mount Cronion. Greek legend tells us that here Cronos had his seat, and that in memory of his overthrow, these Olympian games were instituted by Zeus, his son and vanquisher. At the foot of this hill was the Altis, the sacred grove, where stood statues and altars innumerable, while between this and the Alpheus stood the three great temples, of Olympian Zeus, of Hera his wife, and of the mother of the gods. What a sight to see when all this lovely plain was crowded with men in bright apparel, coming, some in chariots, some on foot, from the sea on the west, from the highlands of Elis on the north, and of Arcadia in the east. How must the sun, which now sheds its radiance over the relics of departed glory, have then lighted up with triumphant gleam that wondrous mass of temples and altars and statues, glittering with red and blue and gold, in the days when the mighty temple of Olympian Zeus still stood in all its beauty, fit habitation for the masterpiece of Phidias. Quote, States fall, arts fade, but nature doth not die. No, we see the plain, no doubt, very much as Pericles, as Alexander, must have seen it. Still is the ground carpeted with gay flowers, with luxuriant shrubs and grasses. 
man's work alone has well-nigh perished. Mere fragments of it are but now being unearthed and restored to the light of day. Should we seek the causes that have wrought this change, we should find that man and nature have been working together, that earthquake and river have carried on the work begun by the hand of the barbarian, till the German expedition, which entered upon the labours of excavation two years ago, found nothing in this famous spot but an unbroken expanse of waving grass. On reaching the scene of the diggings, we were shown first a curious Byzantine basilica, which had lately been dug out, and which is attributed to early Christian times. We then passed on to the Temple of Zeus. This has now been fully excavated, so that the plan is quite clear. Nothing remains actually in situ save the basement, a few of the bottom drums of the columns, and a piece of the wall of the cellar. But as the earthquake which destroyed it must have burst in the middle of the temple, so that the columns, in many cases complete, lie outwards on all the four sides, it's not difficult to reconstruct it in imagination. It must be confessed, however, that for one who saw here his first Greek temple, this temple at Olympia, in its present state, was profoundly disappointing. Not because there's nothing standing, I was prepared for that, but even Pausanias's careful statement that the temple was built of poorer stone from the neighbourhood had not prepared me for the extreme coarseness of the material. One somehow had a notion, cherished even in the face of obvious facts, that no Greek architect would look at anything less attractive than Parian marble, and yet here you see drums and capitals of the roughest possible composite. Three or four of these huge members were entirely made of shells. No doubt stucco and colour concealed these defects in the days of old, but now they're painfully obvious. If the temple, however, as it now is, did not quite fulfil one's hopes and wishes, the disappointment was amply compensated for by the glorious fragments of the sculptures in Parian marble adorning its pediments, which have lately been discovered lying round about. Pausanias, who visited Greece in the 2nd century AD, has left us a very complete, and as far as one can see, faithful picture of Olympia at that time. He tells us that these sculptures were entrusted to two pupils of Phidias, those of the eastern pediment to Paionios, to whom also is attributed the very beautiful figure of victory found at this end of the temple in 1876, those of the western pediment to Alchemenes. The figures of Paionios, a Thracian artist, are very noble in conception and vigorous in treatment, but the work of Alchemenes, which the labours of 1877 brought to light, has more finish and grace. One could hardly imagine anything more perfectly adapted to the height, about 60 feet, at which they are to be seen, than is the style in which these figures are executed. The moulding of the limbs is of first-rate workmanship. The general lines of the figures are exquisitely graceful. The whole effect is one of simple majesty, unimpaired by the necessity of considering minute detail. The subject of the western pediment is a very favourite one with Greek sculptors, the Battle of the Centaurs and the Lapithae at the marriage feast of Peirithus. The most noticeable, because the most perfect figures that remain, are 1. 
a reclining figure of a woman leaning on her left elbow and gazing in that direction with an eagerness of attitude rather than of expression for the face is quite calm not even in the elgin marbles is there anything nobler than this it must have occupied the northern extremity of the pediment and is supposed to represent a nymph watching the struggle next to this is too a magnificent fragment a woman in the grasp of a centaur the head and half the body of the woman are perfect and much resemble the nymph in treatment both have their hair confined in a close-fitting cap of the centaur there only remains the right leg which powerfully clutches the woman's waist these with the rest of the figures from the pediments the victory of Paionios and some beautiful fragments of metopes representing the labours of hercules were standing in a wooden shed whence they will eventually be removed to the museum at athens in a smaller shed among numerous fragments of mouldings pottery etc we saw two grand heads quite perfect a female and a male the latter is supposed to represent apollo and to have stood in the centre of the western pediment of all these sculptures the germans are taking casts and photographs those found in 1876 are already to be seen in the first part of the account of the Olympian discoveries, which is being issued at Berlin. The second part will, I believe, be published very shortly. Footnote. Since the above was written, the second part also of the Ausgrabungen zu Olympia has appeared and contains all the figures of Alcamenes. End footnote. The importance of this find can hardly be exaggerated, Paionios and Alcamenes were mere names to us, and yet of Alcamenes, Pausanias says that he was second only to his contemporary Phidias in the making of statues. When we had seen the sculptures, we mounted again and rode up to Druva, the little village above, where we were to lodge for the night. There, in the little house, which did duty for an inn, a lamb, roasted whole, was set before us. We had here also our first experience of resined wine, a liquor which we could only liken to furniture polish. It was a relief to get a drink of new milk, which was brought to us in a huge wooden bowl after Homeric fashion. In the afternoon we again made our way down to the temple and spent an hour or so wandering about amid its ruins. The day, which had hitherto been bright, had now clouded over and the air was very oppressive. Somehow this gloomy atmosphere seemed more in keeping with the present desolation of the scene than the bright sunlight of the morning. There was something solemn in the stillness. In the morning, workmen had been hurrying to and fro like ants, some with spades and pickaxes, others with wheelbarrows. Now these men, some two hundred in number, had been paid off and dismissed to keep the approaching feast of Easter. We were the only living beings in the place. Sitting there among the mighty fragments, one came to admire their rugged grandeur and to forget the hard thoughts which, at first sight, had come into one's mind, because they were not what they had never claimed to be. There is something sublime in the simplicity of the Doric architecture, whatever the material in which it works. Then, too, the historic associations of the place began to assert themselves. Here was a piece of mosaic pavement made of black and white marbles on which one could still make out a beautiful design. By how many of the greatest men of old Greece might this not have been trod? 
There, in the centre of the temple, stands an oblong block of stone, conjectured to be part of the base of Phidias's statue of Zeus in gold and ivory, a statue which the ancients were unanimous in pronouncing to be the greatest that the world had seen. Had it only been made of Parian marble, who knows that the labours of the past two years might not have brought back to the sight of men this masterpiece? But the material chosen for the work was too precious to last. The story goes that the statue was carried to Constantinople by one of the Greek emperors, and there destroyed in a conflagration. The stadium, or race course, seems to have been to the east of the Temple of Zeus, running along at the foot of Mount Cronion. At present, however, this spot is covered with a tangled mass of luxuriant grass and shrubs, which puts accurate examination out of the question. When we visited Olympia just a year ago, only the Temple of Zeus had been dug out. Since that time, the Temple of Hera has been found, and in it a beautiful statue of Hermes, which is attributed, on the authority of Pausanias, to Praxiteles. If this be so, it is the only genuine work of that master which has come down to us. Between the Temple of Zeus and Mount Cronion lay the Altis, or Sacred Grove, which in old times literally bristled with altars and statues. Pausanias's description of them, and he expressly tells us that he only notes the most conspicuous, occupies some hundred pages, and at the end of it one feels quite bewildered at the thought of one small spot of earth containing so rich an art treasure. Though such a collection must have suffered greatly at the hands of time, of nature, and of man, it can hardly be that excavations in this spot should turn out quite fruitless. While from the unlooked-for success of the work hitherto, one is tempted to form high hopes for the future. End of section two.